Dave Anderson, a senior policy fellow at the Wisconsin Institute for Public Policy and Service, otherwise known as WIPS. Hi, I'm Eric Giordano, the executive director of WIPS. Uh, let me tell you a little bit about WIPS. Uh, WIPS is a unit of the University of Wisconsin system. For well over a decade now, WIPS has implemented programs and services to educate and engage citizens, develop future leaders, and help communities address issues that they care about. So today we're straying from our usual format. Um, Dave, you know, you and I designed this show to be a little bit lighthearted, a 20 to 20 minute, say, uh, lunch break on Friday with, a, with you know, a few silly ball puns and jokes, um, followed by a featured guest where we did try to tackle at least one serious topic, you know, in a short time frame. Um, but last week, even as we were in the middle of our show, it became evident that the tragedy of George Floyd's death due to unnecessary and criminal violence by a Minneapolis police officer, while three of his compatriots participated and then looked on in silence as a man was desperately begging for help, uh, it radically changed our world and obviously triggered um, a storm of protest around the country, which we are uh, seeing ongoing. Now, I think we would be truly insensitive um, to use our platform for anything other uh, this week than a serious conversation about our current situation. And for that reason, we've asked two truly outstanding people to join our show who have had a very personal stake um, in what is happening. Our guests are both African-American men with their own lived experience, but in addition to living every day as black men in America, our guests have undergone unique journeys that have propelled them into careers that address racial inequality and that actively help people to attain justice and healing. So we're gonna engage our two guests in a conversation today. We're gonna to get right to it uh, with some prepared questions. However, if you are joining live via Facebook, you're welcome to post a question over the next 45 minutes in the Facebook chat area. Our producer, Luke Rudolph, whom we greatly appreciate, will let us know if there's a question to be shared um, with the guests. Now, we hope you'll have some understanding. We, we don't have you know, an inordinate amount of time uh, and we can't necessarily field every question. So please forgive us if we don't get to your question, but we'll do the best we can. If you're watching the show uh, via recorded um, uh, programming, then we gladly receive any comments or questions from you later. You can reach us at info at whips.org. That's info at wipps.org. So Dave, why don't you take away with introductions? Thank you, Eric. Uh, and it's our pleasure to introduce first Mr. Reggie Jackson, co-owner and lead trainer of Nurturing Diversity Partners and head griot, another word for uh, docent, with America's Black Holocaust Museum in Milwaukee. He also serves as a senior columnist for the Milwaukee Independent. Welcome, Reggie. Well, thanks for having me, Dave. Eric, good to see you guys again. And Jared Adams is the founder and owner of the law office of Jared Adams, with offices in New York, Chicago, and now Milwaukee. Jarrett specializes in criminal and civil law. Prior to that, he was an attorney at the Innocence Project and formerly a client who was wrongfully connected, convicted and sentenced to prison for a crime he did not commit and then exonerated with the help of the Wisconsin Innocence Project. Welcome, Jarrett. Hey, thank you guys for having me. Good morning. Great to have you both. And before we get to the questions, uh, I just want to take a moment, Reggie, we'll start with you. Um, can you tell us just a little, little bit about Nurturing Diversity Partners, what you guys do? Yes, so the company was started by myself and my business partner, Dr. Fran Kaplan, 
she and I started working together uh, as volunteers with America's Black Holocaust Museum about 11 years ago. And a little over two and a half years ago, we started nurturing diversity partners to kind of continue the work that we do around issues of diversity, equity, inclusion, uh, engaging people in conversations about race, racism, American history, really getting people to have a clear understanding of how we got to where we are. And so we decided that we were missing the audiences outside of Milwaukee. So we made a concerted effort to begin to reach communities in our suburbs, our exurbs, the rural communities. And we've done work in 35 different cities and towns in the state of Wisconsin over the last couple of years. Uh, and it's been very gratifying to be invited to those spaces uh, where people are having conversations that people don't know they're having. Yeah, that's fantastic. And, and that's how I initially met Reggie. He came up to our community, did a wonderful job. So I definitely recommend him to, to your community. Uh, Jarrett, why don't you tell us a little bit about what kind of work you're doing through your law offices? Yeah, so I um, thank you guys for the kind introduction as well. So, you know, my experience as a 17-year-old being falsely accused, wrongfully convicted, ultimately serving 10 years in prison until the Wisconsin Innocence Project came and litigated and, and my case was reversed. It actually gave me my calling. It gave me an opportunity to, to live with and, and, and be around people who had circumstances that were not what their parents told. And so after getting out, I graduated from Loyola Law School. I clerked in, in, in several circuits uh, for, for courts on a federal you know, level. Uh, and then I worked with the Innocence Project and I was inspired even more to go out and start my own firm. So that way I can directly impact clients in a way in which I think is very unique. And now I have an office in, uh, in New York, uh, just open one up in Wisconsin where you guys are. And I'm working on the finishing end of opening one up in Chicago right now. Fantastic, thanks for sharing. Okay, we're ready to jump into our questions, Dave. You know, I, I, I'd like to ask both of you why you think the George Floyd situation has become such a spark for so many protests across the entire nation. Uh, why this one incident um, has resulted in what we've been seeing since Memorial Day? Well, I, I think there's two things that make this one kind of stand out. I think the fact that it happened so close to uh, the incident where Breonna Taylor was killed by police in Louisville, Kentucky, uh, where we had um, Ahmaud Arbery murdered um, down in Georgia, and then the case with the, the Black man in uh, Central Park who had 911 called on him. I think those things were kind of in people's minds already, and they were angry about those things. And then to see the video of Mr. Floyd being killed by police in Minneapolis, uh, I, I think most importantly about the video, and I haven't watched it, I've read about it. I, I can't watch it. I've seen too many of those videos. I think the words that he spoke when he said, I can't breathe, it reminded people of Eric Garner back in 2014. And, and I think when he said two different times, he called out for his deceased mother. Uh, I think that that pulled at people's heartstrings in a way that most of these videos haven't because we heard the audio. And to hear these, this man's last words and to know that we're watching him die, I think that that galvanized people's emotions around this topic. And I think it just led to more and more people being, being at a place where they say, you know what, this is enough. It's, it's just way too much. We have to express our displeasure with this and do something different than we've done before. We need more than just talk, we need action. Yeah. And I agree, I, I agree wholeheartedly with Reggie. I mean, it, it's, a, it's a multitude of different things. And also, 
you know, we've been uh, forced to, to, to be inside for two and a half months, and you have a lot of emotions that are high. We've also uh, been, we've had the opportunity to see our leadership, um, you know, all throughout these news segments, the comments. And I think that we have to acknowledge that this didn't just start. It, it's, it just started being recorded. And I think right now people are just, they're tired of it. And this is what needs to happen. Because if you look at any great change in our society, it doesn't happen when the people who are affected scream and holler. It happens when everyone's voice is unified. And I think that no matter where you stand in your political party, there's no way you can watch that video and say that that was acceptable. Because if that would have been a, a puppy that those officers were kneeling on, you probably would have saw the entire community attacking those officers. And so I think that right now, the conversation that we are having is one that, that we've, we've kind of put on a back burner and ignored for hundreds of years. And I think now is the best time to fully address it and stop putting Band-Aids where sutures and peroxide and alcohol is needed. Okay, thank you both. Our next question is, um, what's at stake and what kind of results would demonstrate, not just to protesters, but to all Americans, that our country is really addressing the issue, like you're saying, Jared, in a serious way, um, issues faced by people of color in particular? What, what, what would that, what would results look like that would be that would be positive? I mean, it, it's the, the the call, in my opinion, as an attorney, is simple, but the action is harder, and that comes down to the laws in our society that that create these immunities around officers' conducts and, and actions. And I think I think that look, if you look at the budgets right now for municipalities and how much they spend on policing. They spend uh, uh, the great majority on just that, on policing, and they, they spend a very small amount on community relations, uh, re-entry, and just social justice issues. If the idea behind policing and, and corrections is that uh, we are telling our society that this isn't success acceptable and you should do this, you, you, you can't punish and brutalize your way uh, into that. It, it's, it's a learned behavior just like it's a learned behavior for people to ignore that that people of color, specifically black men, have, have, have been on the wrong end of this stick hundreds of times throughout these decades of years. So I think that what we have to do is we have to do um, what we did to make this country great, and that was be litigious. We need to litigate our way to the Supreme Court to enact these laws that have grand sweeping change. We can't simply fire officers and then when they get to sentencing after being uh, charged, they're given you know sentences that we know that, that their counterparts would not get. We have to do some real change and that's gonna have to come from the Supreme Court legislation and not just putting it on the books, but actually implementing it and making sure that it's getting done. Uh, Reggie, what are your thoughts on that? On what, what kind of things would demonstrate to all of us that our country is actually addressing these changes in a real way or needed changes? Yeah, you know, I, I agree with Jared that uh, a big part of it is the way that we, uh, we protect police officers. We don't treat police officers who commit crimes 
the same way we do other people in our community that commit crimes. I always say that, you know, if I was to go out tomorrow and, and murder somebody in front of my house, I would be arrested right on the spot. Uh, there would be no conversation about, well, we have to do a thorough investigation before we can make an arrest. We have to do a thorough investigation before we, you know, call the right charges for Reggie. And that's what happens every time a police officer kills someone. We have to wait weeks before they're charged. In many cases, we have to wait weeks before we even hear who they are. We don't know who their names are. And then they, they, they make it very complicated about the charges as if they can amend charges at a later date. They do it all the time. So you have to be more transparent when it comes to treating police officers the way we treat uh, civilians. I mean, if a person who commits a criminal act, uh, it doesn't matter if they are a law enforcement officer or not, the process should be about the same. And, and when you provide that level of transparency, I think you develop trust in the communities of color, in particular black community. And you know, ultimately, I think what people are looking for, the, the changes we're talking about, the protests are not about police violence. These protests are about centuries of mistreatment of black people uh, and other people of color, Native Americans, uh, Latinos, uh, Asian Americans. We have mistreated people of color horribly for you know 400 plus years in this country. And all of these things have built up to, to you know, these conversations that appear to people on the outside to be about George Floyd, but they're not about George Floyd. They're about much more than that. They're about much more than police misconduct. They're about you know uh, the, the fact that our economy has always disallowed blacks uh, to be on the same footing as whites. When we look at past discrimination, legal discrimination, I tell people this all the time, think about this, Jim Crow laws. You know, we talk about Jim Crow as if it was, you know, these the signs in the South and all. Jim Crow were laws that mandated that you discriminate against black people. I mean, think about that. It mandated if you didn't discriminate against a black person, you were literally breaking the law. And there are over 80 million Americans alive today who were alive and well when Jim Crow laws were still on the books in this country. So when we look at those types of things, we look at a history of discrimination in housing, not allowing blacks to become homeowners and build generational wealth, uh, you know, discrimination. You know, black people, we always say this when it comes to jobs. We know we're always going to be the last hired and the first fired. That's from our lived experiences. And so there are a lot of things that America has done over many, many decades that it needs to basically, in my opinion, the first step we need to take is to admit that we've done these things, admit that we have treated people of color differently and we continue to treat them differently. That's the first step uh, in any program where you're trying to make restitution. You know, the work that we do at Nurture Diversity Partners comes from uh, my mentor, Dr. James Cameron, the founder of America's Black Holocaust Museum. This man survived a lynching at the age of 16. 16 years old, survived a lynching in Marion, Indiana. At the age of 74, he opened America's Black Holocaust Museum. And his main goal, which is my goal in life, is to help us build racial repair and reconciliation. You cannot repair something. You cannot reconcile these problems without admitting that you have done wrong, first of all. And then begin the conversations about how do we educate ourselves about how we got here. We do a horrible job of teaching American history in our schools. We do Absolutely. it intentionally. We teach yeah. the good stuff and we leave all the bad stuff out. And because most Americans don't know the bad stuff or don't know the details of it, they think that, well, you know, we're in this post-racial America. We elected a black man as president and all these things. It's like, listen, that was one person who was elected 
and most white people didn't vote for him either time. He got a uh, minority of the white vote in 2008, minority white vote in 2012. That did not suddenly change America. You cannot change 400 years of history overnight. And I think as we move forward, uh, the biggest challenge we have is getting people to accept that there is racism, that it's alive and well, and most importantly, that it's not just individual acts of bigotry, it's system-wide bigotry, system-wide racism. Those are the challenges. We have to rebuild our institutions so that they cannot be uh, acting the way that they are. Th th this is what systemic racism is, to define it very quickly and easily. When your race can predict your outcome in life, that's systemic racism. When the outcome of your health, the outcome of your job prospects, the outcome of your encounters with the police can be predicted by your race, then that's systemic racism. Yeah. Appreciate that definition. And we're going to touch on that again in another question. Uh, do, is it okay if we go on to another question? Yeah, yeah sure. I mean, right, okay, I, Dave. What? Yeah, I, uh, as you said, you know, I, um, you know, as I watch the news uh, uh, every day, since, particularly since Memorial Day, among the many things that I'm concerned about is how sometimes it seems to me that the efforts of those engaging in peaceful protests are being overshadowed by those engaging in, in looting and rioting. So I'd like to ask the two of you, um, how do the groups and individuals organizing peaceful protests in favor of the meaning social change that we've been talking about uh, different, differentiate their efforts from outside groups that are focused more on, on violence and anarchy? And how should the public understand the difference between uh, those two motivations that we see uh, play out on the news? Yeah, I, our country has always had disruptors. I mean, they, they've always had disruptors. There are people who are, are out for different reasons. And I, I think, look, I think education and knowledge uh, about the real reason why the protest is going on would allow people to understand that there are more than just uh, uh, supporters of George Floyd and um, you know reformers asking for reform. There are people who have have been born into poverty, and that's all they've ever known all of their life. And so this is an opportunity in their mind to express anger and 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 and, and do violence. But let me point this out, and let me be very, very, very clear. Our media at times, sometimes they only depict the African-Americans of people of color who are going in and out of stores and breaking windows. But there have been a lot of social media posts that are showing non-people of color who are participating. In fact, it was a case in, of a lawyer in Brooklyn, um, a white female, who actually threw a Molotov cocktail bomb out, out of the car at the police. So I, I think that if, if if people are having a hard time understanding that everyone who is who is out and marching with signs are not violent uh, uh, protesters, then how, how can they, on the same breath, say, "Well, not all officers are bad"? So you, you have to understand that that these these groups are sometimes intertwining, and what they do is they're just taking out frustration and anger. We can't lose sight of the fact that the real reason that people are out is because. They want to see change. And if we, as American people, um, are not allowed to demonstrate and exercise our, our, our constitutional rights to demand and ask for change, then, then that you know, takes the fabric away from, from, from the cloth that is the Constitution and being an American. We, we have to just, it, it's, it's, it's clear that 
Um, history will show you that even in a group like the Black Panthers, there were people who were paid to go in, become a part of that group, and, and do things of violence to make the entire group look as if they were violent. It happens on both sides, and I think that we just need to be understandable about and, and, and focused on the, the real reason that we're out is for reform and for change. And let me, let me I wanted to say something, because Reggie, um, you know, he, he made me think about this. You know, the charges of the one officer didn't come until days later. The charges of the remaining three officers didn't come until the entire world became angry. That's saying something. And that isn't saying something positive about the leadership that we have right now. That says that the people at the top do not understand or have an understanding or want to have an understanding with just how much pain the people on the, on the ground and in the, in the neighborhoods are, are feeling. Thank you. Reggie? Yeah, you know, I, I absolutely agree with, with that last uh, assessment Jared made. You know, you think about uh, the reaction of our leaders. Listen, we're well aware that we tend to be more reactive than proactive when it comes to these things. I think that the charges against the additional officers would not have happened had it not been for protests around the world. You know, there's a great deal of pressure put on officials about that. And, you know, to kind of look at the way we portray the protests in the media, you know, I paid very close attention to a lot of the national media and even international media, how they're covering it. Listen, I know from history of, of studying how media works, there's this old saying in the media that if it bleeds, it leads. You know, uh -huh. things that, that, that raise your blood pressure are much more likely to be on the news than things that don't. So it's much more likely that you're gonna see somebody uh, breaking some windows or throwing a Molotov cocktail on the news. You're much more likely to see that than you are to see, you know, 10,000 people peaceably walking five miles together without doing anything. And when I think about how people are putting, uh, you know, the, 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 the so-called violence of the protests and connecting that with the rest of the protest. It's not the same. First of all, the people that are throwing the Molotov cocktails, the people that are shooting at the police, the people that are looting stores, they, these are not the people that are out there in the peaceful protests earlier in the day. You know, here in Milwaukee, we've had multiple protests. I know many of the leaders of the protests, and I can tell you unequivocally that when their, their protests end at the end of the day and all of those protesters go home, the people that are out late that night are not the same people. Listen, these people start their protests at 11 a.m. and they're done by five, six e in the evening. And the people that do the looting, they're out at two o'clock in the morning looting a store. They're not coming out at four in the afternoon and looting in Milwaukee. And even to get to the point that Jared made earlier about white people, you know, not being, the spotlight not being on them, there was, a, there was one fire set in Milwaukee, the first day of the protest, one fire set at a Walgreens. Some people went in and looted the Walgreens, someone set a fire, but someone set, you know, came in and put the fire out immediately. We found out several days later from the video that the person who set the fire was a white guy. And the person who put the fire out was a black woman because she said, this is crazy. Why are we burning this store in our own neighborhood? And so the narrative about who's committing these acts of violence, it, it really bothers me. And the other part of it that's bothered me more than anything else in terms of the conversations about how we describe, you know, the, the, the protests as violent protests. Listen, I've seen the videos of innocent American citizens, men, women, and children peacefully walking or standing 
being attacked by police for no apparent reason, being attacked with tear gas, being beaten with billy clubs, being hit in the face uh, with riot gear. I've seen journalists being attacked by the police on purpose. When we talk about the violence of the protests, we better make sure that we talk about the violence being perpetrated by these law enforcement officers, because that's a big part of the violence we're seeing. We're not seeing people attacking police as much as we're seeing the police attack people. It reminds me very much of what we saw back in the late 1960s when we had anti-war protests and the police, you know, killing those students at Kent State and those students at Jackson State University. It reminds me of the exact same thing because our police departments have been trained to be uh, very much of the mindset that you have to control people. You don't have to control people who are standing there. Just let them stand there. And if they want to shout at you and curse at you, that is not harming you. And you can't tell me that people throwing water bottles at police who are in riot gear and tanks, that they're, they're afraid for their lives. That's just nonsense. We have to really make sure that we uh, don't allow the narrative to be shifted to blame people and focus uh, the, the narratives on the fact that people are protesting injustices throughout this country and they want to see changes happen. We can't get uh, deluded into believing that those people that are looting and setting fires and other stupid stuff like that, you know, we know they're angry. Obviously, they're angry. But when you're looting, you're not looting because you're angry. You're looting because you're probably too poor to be able to afford some of that stuff and you want to get some free stuff. Yeah. So. So I have a tough follow-up question on this looting issue for you, and it, and it could just be yes or no, or you're welcome to comment, but even if you don't, it sounds like you don't condone uh, the looting and the violence per perpetrated by some of these uh, extremer elements of the protest movement, or, and like you said, maybe it's not even part of the protest movement, right? But anyway, there is a narrative that I've heard, not, not just in the Black community, but in the white community across the country, that maybe without these acts of violence, even if the vast majority of protesters have nothing to do with them, but without them, maybe we never see any change. What do yeah. you think about that? I, you know, listen, I, I can't, you know, support or condone people burning down their own communities. I just can't. Now, can I, as a, as an African American, understand that that where the anger is coming from? Absolutely, I can, but I, I can't encourage or condone, you know, burning down the community. You know, there's a lot of things you can do with this, right? You can ball this thing up and you can swing it, or you can get a pen and you can rewrite the legislation that is holding us by the neck. And that's what we have to do. You know, Thanks. Dr. King told us back in the 1960s that riots are the language of the unheard. And when you see people uh, burning and looting, listen, I, I don't believe that people are burning their own community. They're, what they're doing, they're burning symbols of white, of white society. Because listen, the businesses that they're destroying that have been destroyed in Milwaukee, they're not owned by black people. Uh, and, and when we talk about you know, our community, we don't have ownership of most of the things in our community. People are letting people know that, listen, we want to have some say-so in how our community is treated. And, and I would never condone anybody looting stores. I would never condone anybody burning anything. Because listen, I know some of the, the owners of businesses in Milwaukee that were destroyed when we had the unrest back in 2016 and how debilitating that is. Because not only is that business out of business for an extended period of time, if they have insurance, they can reopen. But what about those employees who were working there who've lost their jobs 
for a period of time or maybe lost their job permanently. So I think that those things are, are, are really not a positive part of it, but guess what it does? It wakes people up to pay attention. And when we had the unrest in Milwaukee uh, back in 2016, I went out and I talked to a lot of the young men in particular, those young black guys that, that people call thugs, that people are afraid to talk to, that other journalists are afraid to have a conversation with. And you know what they all told me? Now they're listening, Reggie. They weren't listening before, but now they're listening. So I think there is an element of it where it awakens in, in, in people this sense that you know we, we better pay attention. We may not like what we're seeing, but we can pay attention uh, to what they're saying. Thank you. It looks like uh, we have a question from our viewers. So Luke, would you share that with us? This is a question from Brad. Brad says, I heard this morning that Minneapolis is the fifth most segregated community. Milwaukee is the most. What can be done to change these stats so our cities become more integrated? Financial freedom. You know, I, I've done uh, quite a bit of um, um, research uh, on the history of segregation. I actually do a, a presentation called The Hidden Impact of Segregation, looking at how segregation developed. I think if the average American knew how segregation developed over a period of decades uh, with the federal government writing uh, what were known as red line maps, drawing maps in 239 cities across this country, designating areas where people of color uh, and even some white ethnic groups lived as hazardous neighborhoods. And if your neighborhood was red on that map and it was considered hazardous, that meant that you could not very easily get a mortgage from a bank. It was practically impossible. So what does, does that do? What it does is it creates a, a lack of ability for communities to build generational wealth. American wealth is not in our bank accounts and our 401ks and our stock portfolios and Bitcoins that we buy. Most American wealth is in uh, the homes that we own. And so when you prevent for decades people of color from becoming homeowners and building equity in their homes, having generational wealth that they can pass down to their children, when you do that for decades and, and you purposely draw up things known as racial covenants, which dictate legally that only white people can live in this community, you create not only segregated spaces, but you create segregated mindsets. You create a lack of opportunity for people of color purposely, legally. You know, these racial covenants uh, and these redlining practices, which are still around because banks are still discriminating. Uh, we had Associated Bank sued by the federal government. They settled for $200 million. Countrywide Financial settled for $335 million. Wells Fargo settled for $175 million because each of them within the last 10 years were still giving different loans to black and Hispanic borrowers than they were white borrowers. Uh, white borrowers who, who were eligible for prime loans got prime loans. Black and Hispanic borrowers who were eligible for prime loans got subprime loans. They did this very intensely. Here in Milwaukee, uh, American Family Insurance for a number of years refused to give insurance in Black neighborhoods. They wouldn't insure your homes, your motorcycles, your cars, and they did it intensely, and they only stopped because they were sued. It goes back to the point Jared made about litigation. The only way we stop these things is we have to tell people that, listen, what you're doing is illegal, you're breaking the law, and you cannot, you cannot overcome decades of segregated communities because what's happened in Milwaukee, the reason Milwaukee is the most segregated metropolitan area in the country 
isn't just because of what we did 50, 60, 70, 80 years ago. It's because of policies that are in place today where we refuse to build affordable housing in our suburbs, where we have zoning laws that require houses to be really large, where we require houses to be really far apart. We do a lot of things to prevent uh, people of color from moving out into our suburban communities. Here in Milwaukee County, we have the lowest percentage of blacks living in our suburbs of any large, highly segregated community in the country. Only seven and a half percent of black people who live in Milwaukee County live outside the city of Milwaukee. And to give an example of another city that's highly segregated that you think of, Detroit, 33% of blacks in that county live outside the city of Detroit. Uh, down in Cleveland, almost 50% of Blacks in Cuyahoga County live outside the city of Cleveland. So these, these policies that have created residential segregation, you cannot make them change overnight. Uh, it's decades in the making, uh, and it's going to be decades in, in terms of fixing those. And most importantly, white people have to make their communities welcome. When you create a situation where you're told that you're not welcome, there was just an incident here in Monona, Wisconsin, just a couple of days ago, where two young black men who were former football players in high school were renting a house from their former coach. And they had a white neighbor call 911 saying they didn't look like they belonged there. The police came into the house with their weapons drawn, uh, put handcuffs on one of the young men, held them at gunpoint, literally, for five minutes before their coach uh, contacted the police when they talked to him and said, no, they're renting the house from me. Hmm. When you have those situations happen, you make black people not want to move into communities that are white communities. You don't create a welcoming environment. There is no way you're going to overcome segregation when black people know that when they move out to the suburbs, somebody's going to spray paint the N-word on their car garage, which happens to a woman I know here in Milwaukee. Yeah, I mean, I, I listen. I agree with everything that, that Reggie just said. This isn't an accident. The the fact that in, look at all of these these cities. You know, you look at Chicago, Detroit. You look at all of them, and you'll see that 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 fancy word that they came up with uh, that rhymes with segre segregation is gentrification. And we weren't we didn't get the memo when they said that. The, the houses closer to downtown, they used to be ghettos and no one would go in. We didn't get the memo that they suddenly would reinvest in those neighborhoods and price the people who died and lived and passed those houses down in their generations, they, they would be priced out of it. So you can't, you can't integrate without integrating finances in, in across these cities. There has to be opportunity. And, and I want to make sure, you know, that I'm very clear when, when I was talking about the burning down of the neighborhoods in the community. Reggie, when those, those CVSs and Walgreens go up, it's going to be a long time before they go back in those neighborhoods and it creates a food in a medical desert. So that's my concern when it comes to that. It's a scary thing to think about. I'm getting calls now from people who are, are talking and describing that same thing. So well, I, I, I also wanted to say this. You make an amazing point about the bank. I just saw a tweet from Bank of America who said that they're pledging, uh, what was it, $1 billion or $1 million? And, and I had to scratch my head because that means absolutely nothing that they're going to require that, that African-Americans and, 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 and folks who they know don't have a 900 credit score to have some type of uh, stipulation to have something that they, that they know they can't have. And until we, we figure out how to create this financial security, we can't figure out segregation and, and, and gentrification. And I, 
as an attorney, I use a lot of analogies. And I think I told this to you guys earlier when, when we were talking about this um, leading up to, to this live. Here's what I want people to understand who are having a hard time understanding um, why, why financial security and, and, and gentrification and segregation is such a problem. I want you to imagine there being an Easter egg hunt, right? And imagine that, you know, me and Eric are telling Reggie, uh, me, me and Eric are telling you, Reggie and Dave, we're getting ready to start picking eggs, but you can't pick eggs. We can't really tell you why other than because of who you are and how you look. For generations, me and Eric are picking eggs. We're passing eggs down in our families. And then finally, someone says, man, look, that's wrong what you're doing to Dave and what you're doing to Reggie. So then we say, all right, well, look, Dave, Reggie, you guys go ahead and start picking eggs. And then you become frustrated because you can't find any eggs, right? It's difficult for you to find them. And then we say, well, what's the problem? We're letting you pick eggs. Stop all that complaining. The problem is we have a hundred plus years of a deficit to catch up. That's not gonna happen. You're telling me that African-Americans shouldn't have stock and some of some of the orange juice companies where, where black men and women died in the groves? You're telling me that, that we're having a problem understanding why we should get reparations when people died in the cotton fields and you got Cottonelle and everyone else who used cotton products? I can continue to go on and on and on. So until we're having a real conversation about righting the wrongs and making sure that we are starting to, to educate our way out of this situation, we're gonna be right back here again because let me, let me also say this, 30 years ago, we had the first real true recording of police brutality in Los Angeles. A lot of people out here marching today, they were either not born or they were kids when, when we had Rodney King being beaten. If any time a conversation was needed and legislation and police immunity was, 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 was needed to be changed, it was then when that man was almost beaten to death. Yet we saw officers get off, we saw the community explode, we saw rioting, and you would have thought we would have took the time to fix the situation in, but we didn't. And we are right back here again. For African-Americans, they are exhausted. This is the same movie we got the same popcorn, the same drink, and we're sitting in the same chair watching this movie. You know, Eric, I think we have another viewer question, so maybe we'll turn it back to Luke uh, to find out what that question is. Luke? Yeah. Deanna writes, Reggie Jackson and Jarrett, you both are amazing. Thank you for this discussion. Can you point to specific legislation that we can ask our senators and representatives to support? Well, you know, I, I think the first thing is that we, we often talk about new legislation. We have legislation that's on the books already that yeah. we're not taking advantage of. You know, we have uh, across the country, we have local, uh, state, and even federal uh, housing discrimination laws on the books, but we don't enforce them. You know, we celebrated two years ago the 50th anniversary of the um, 1968 Federal Fair Housing Act. And what people don't know about that law is that about a year after it, it passed, and it only passed because there was a great deal of pressure uh, after Dr. King's assassinated, you know, 250 cities across the country uh, went, uh, were set on fire basically out of the anger people had. And that put pressure on Congress to pass that law. But guess what happened about a year later? 
is that there was a program called the Open Communities Program that was set up to enforce that law where municipalities that were discriminating against people of color in housing, that um, you know, housing and urban development said, we will cut off funding for any federal projects, whether it be a highway project, a water project, you know, electrical grid project, whatever it may be, we'll cut you off. And immediately once this program was implemented, communities around the country called and complained about it. And President Nixon said these words. He said, I'm opposed to this. And he went one step further. He said, knock it in the head now. And HUD stopped enforcing the law at that time. And they've never really fully enforced it since that time. So we can talk about new legislation, but let's revisit some of the legislation that's already on the books. It's against the law to discriminate in housing, but people do it all the time. All the time. It's against the law to discriminate in employment, but people do it all the time. There are so many things that people do that are, are against the law, but we don't enforce the law. When it comes to, like I said earlier, if a police officer commits a crime, and, and I was living in out, out in LA uh, when Rodney King was beat. I was there when all of the, 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 the rioting and stuff ensued. I sat in my apartment and watched all of that play out in real time. And I can tell you this, that that was just the tip of the iceberg. There were multiple other things that happened leading up to that. And after all was said and done, they had a commission they put together that studied what happened and they made all of these recommendations. After the riots in 19, the late 60s, the Kerner Commission issued recommendations which were ignored by President Lyndon Johnson. We can, we, we're gonna have the same thing happen now. We're gonna have commissions put together to study this and make yeah. recommendations. But listen, people in our community, we are not expecting real change to happen as a result of this. We're hopeful. We, yeah. we really feel good that so many white people around the country are protesting with us. You know, I heard that people in, in uh, Fargo, North Dakota were protesting and people in Salt Lake City, I was like, they can't be black folks because there ain't a whole lot of us out in those places, right? So it's yeah. great that white people are supporting us in the protests, but will they be supporting us when the real change needs to happen? When we have to make the types of changes that white people are afraid of, because listen, many white people assume that this is a zero sum game that if, if Black people, Latino people, Native American people gain something, that they have to lose something. Listen, there's, there's more than enough abundance in this country for everybody. You know, we're the richest country in the history of the world. There's more uh, than enough riches to go around for everybody if we share them equitably. But guess what? White people have been hoarding resources for so long that they don't know how to not do it. They're so accustomed to it that it feels normal to them. And when it comes to, to, to what we're asking for, we're asking for equity. I mean, this is what equity is. Equity is not equality. Equality is when you give everybody the same thing. Mm -hmm. But equity is when you give people what they need. And I want to move even beyond that. Justice is when you remove those barriers that prevent people from having the same things that everyone else has. White people have to understand, and a lot of people are very uncomfortable with this idea uh, that, that somehow uh, you know, people of color have been mistreated. A lot of white people don't even believe that. They don't believe that you know, system, systemic uh, racism even exists. All you have to do is open your eyes and you can see it clearly. Uh, and I always recommend this uh, when it comes to solutions, that first of all, before you have the conversations about changes, 
you need to educate yourself about how these problems got to be what they are in the first place. Unless you have a clear understanding of the history of how we got here, then you're not going to craft the types of solutions that are going to be effective. This is what happens when we have these commissions. You know, they study what happened, they make recommendations, and we never follow through. We have to follow through this time because if we don't, we're going to be back in the same situation with the next Black person who gets killed two years from now, five years from now, seven years from now. We're going to have the exact same conversations on podcasts and on newscasts. We're going to have the same conversations over again because we never take the crucial step of saying, okay, let's stop what we're doing, analyze what we're doing, and let's change the way we're doing things moving forward. That's the critical phase. And we have to have the support of white people. Listen, and, and when it comes to, to the idea of white people being involved in it, listen, white people are not gonna come up with the solutions without voices of people of color. They don't know the problems as well as we do. We live the problems. If exactly. you don't have us in the room guiding you in terms of solutions, the solutions you come up with will be irrelevant. They're not gonna work. That's what happened in Milwaukee after the unrest. Too many white people were in the room talking about what we need to fix this, that, and the other. Not enough black and, and brown voices in the room. And so the solutions they came up with have been basically something that was useless. You have to have the voices of the people most impacted in the room. If you don't give them a voice and a seat at the table, then you're gonna be basically back to the status quo. Yeah, I mean, I, I agree. The one, the, the, the one thing that I would say is this, we need to remove immunity from both the police and the prosecutor. We have to start prosecuting prosecutors for neglect. These laws, like Reggie said, they're on the books. These laws are not enforced when the prosecutor looks like the person that they don't want to prosecute. But somehow, um, you know, when African-Americans stand before that same prosecutor, the fullest extent of the, of the law is used. If you look at what's going on inside of these neighborhoods with the housing discrimination, the banking discrimination, you know, they're just, the laws are on the books. The prosecutors are using their discretion not to do it. And, and, and another way of putting it is this. If, if I'm in charge of, of taking care of, let's say, a pet, for, for an example, and I don't feed that pet, I do the bare minimum, do you know I could be prosecuted for neglect? So at what point do we, do we start to prosecute the prosecutors who are neglecting with their discretion to not enforce the laws that will lead and trickle down to the chipping away of the, the segregation and the gentrification? And, I'm, and, and look, the, when you talk about Wisconsin and you talk about, um, you know, segregation, don't, don't forget the other word that, that rhymes with segregation. Look at incarceration. Per capita in Wisconsin, they incarcerate more black men than any other state. That's fact, not fiction. And I lived it. And, and, and when you do that, what do you think the people who reintegrate uh, back from incarceration go? They go right back into the impoverished neighborhoods in which they were first arrested, were arrested sometime decades ago. And then they go and they don't have, um, you know, the tools that they need to reintegrate back into society. If, tell me when a prosecutor is going to prosecute the parole board or some other person who's in charge with the community for failing to give the necessary tools to make that community better. What's the point of us voting and getting legislation passed if we don't have people prosecuting the people who are failing to do what the laws require them to do? So if I have to add one law, it is to wipe away immunity because immunity allows you to use your discretion for your friends and people who look like you. It should not be an option 
to enforce laws. But right now, that's the problem that we're having. You know, you know we're, oh, oh, go ahead, Dave. You go. I was going to say, you know, Eric, uh, time is really fleeting here. And I think we've only scratched the surface uh, in this yeah. great discussion we've been having today. Well, um, yeah, I, can, I, can I just cut in for a second? The good news is, though, that uh, they actually, Jared and, and Reggie, you both, answered a lot of questions that we had you know can I can I just ask one follow-up question though because I, I I really this is maybe a little personal but I've got some friends I I feel like they're smart people they seem like on some level as individuals they're also good people okay but I hear them say things like um well you know I'm not a racist these are tend to be white people obviously I'm not a racist um and I don't really think there is systemic racism because we've been talking about that, which I appreciate you sharing about that. Um, so therefore, I'm not quite sure I have a responsibility, you know, to do anything. And and I guess it's as frustrating for me personally because I just don't see it that way. And I just want to know how have you been able to? And Reggie, I've seen you do this. So how are you able to talk with people? to help them to open their eyes to what is happening. I look at the situation with Drew Brees. I don't know if you guys saw that or the yeah, guests saw that, yeah. uh, how he came out and he was just like, you know, I am never gonna support kneeling for the flag because it's uh, my grandparents fought in, you know, for wars and gave their lives. And, and okay, there, nobody's take, trying to take away from that, but he had a, a very severe immediate reaction. Yeah. And then he came out with a really long apology, which I think was heartfelt. So something changed there. Right. How do we get people to sort of have the conversation where change is possible? I mean, look, you look, you have to hold your friends accountable um, to, to, to having factual conversations. And what I mean by that is this. It's one thing what they what they are telling you is the truth. They aren't racist. They're privileged for being white. And they can't you can't recognize it if you've never been faced with those hardships. And I, I think that. I think that education is key. And I know Reggie can follow up on this. You can't just have an opinion based on your experiences of long. That's not educated opinion. That's not. You have to, I want you to tell your friends to go look at a documentary called The 13th, right? It's a beautiful documentary put together, put together by Ava DuVernay, which talks about the, the, the tentacles that still reach us today from slavery to incarceration and why you have so many black men incarcerated and why laws were created like the crack laws to really pound on top of the black community. So when you when you start to have these conversations, but it's more than just you saying, you know, I don't agree with you, but you start, start to send them things, start to let them see and read for themselves. Cause I can almost assure you that someone who has an opinion that, um, well, you know, I'm not the problem. I don't have anything to do with it. Those are people who cannot sympathize and empathize, which is why we need equality. There has to be a conversation about that. And, and let me let me just, I'll, I'll end with this, another analogy that I oftentimes use. You know, if there's some crap on a sidewalk, dog crap, people will walk past it. Some people may think that dog crap needs to be picked up. Other people might not even think about it at all. But let me tell you about that person who snaps in it. That person who steps in it is taking his shoe off, he's wiping it in the grass, he's cursing every dog owner that, that, that is on a leash and walking around because he has a full understanding about that crap because it's on the bottom of his shoe. But the other people who've walked past it, they forgot about it and they want a part of their day. It shouldn't take the crap to be on the bottom of your shoe to start giving a crap, is what I'm saying. 
Wow. wow. You know, that, that, that's powerful. And, you know, this, this, you know, as I travel around the state, you know, black people only make up 6% of the population in the state of Wisconsin, right? So when I go to communities like Warsaw and La Crosse and Burlington, um, you know, Platteville, these places that are mostly white, obviously most of the people who come out to hear me speak are white people, right? And, and, and I hear these things and people uh, all the time, like, you know, Reggie, you know, I'm not a racist, so what can I, listen, white people need to get over this idea of thinking that every black person thinks every white person is a racist. That's just absolutely a myth. You don't have to be a racist to discriminate. You know, and, and, and you can be the most egalitarian person ever, the most heartwarming person, but you can be biased. All of us have biases because that's the way our brains are wired. This is what I tell people we have to understand. When we talk about like unconscious bias or even explicit bias, it's not the fact that we have these biases. What's important is where do the biases come from? Where do these stereotypes of Black people and Native Americans and Latinos, where do they come from? When you're able to educate yourself about that history, where these ideas came from, then you can clearly see that you don't have to be a racist person to be implicated in a system that discriminates against people of color. When, when it's embedded in institutions, this is how I tell people to look at institutional and structural and systemic racism. Look at the outcomes of institutions. Look at the outcome of our healthcare system. Look at the outcome of our educational system. Look at the outcome of our criminal justice system. And not only do we have uh, the highest incarceration rate for black males in the country, we have the highest incarceration rate for Native American males as well. So they, these are things when you look at them, and like I said earlier, when your race can predict that, when you can predict that uh, a, a child growing up who's black has a one in three chance of spending time behind bars, you know that that's something in the system that as that child grows up, he's much more likely to be in that situation. When you can predict that black men will die at a much younger age than white men of heart disease. When you can predict that black women are much more likely to die of lung cancer than, or, or breast cancer than white women. These are the types of things that are embedded in the institutions in our country. And the only way you can see them just like Jared said, if it's not if it's not something that's directly related to you, you don't see it. You know, we 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 call it the blind spot. We all have a physical blind spot about 12 to 18 inches in front of our faces, but people have this blind spot in terms of their lived experiences. If you haven't experienced it, then you don't really understand it. The only way you get to understanding it is doing exactly what Jared told us. Watch documentaries about our lived experiences that we've made. Watch uh, movies that we've made about our lived experiences, read books and memoirs that we've written. You can learn about people of color. You know, as I travel to some of these small towns and people say, well, Reggie, you know, uh, I was taught that, you know, if, if, I, if I get to have a black friend, you know, you know, I can kind of understand these issues better. And I say, listen, I say this in a lot of little white towns around Wisconsin. There's not enough black people to go around for every white person to have a black friend, right? <laughs> it's just not realistic, right? So what you can do is you don't have to live uh, with this idea that you have to know a black person or a Latino person, Native American, whatever person. You can learn about us the same way we learn about white people. You know how we learn about white people? We turn on the television. We pick up a book. You can do the same thing. Change the sources of your information. And then you have a better understanding because you can't understand our lived experiences without in, in investing in us talking about what those lived experiences have been like. And when you do that, I'm telling you, uh, resources that we give to individuals when we travel around the state, we give resource lists of things that they can 
you know, take with them and learn more details. I tell people if you want to learn about segregation, read Richard Rothstein's book, The Color of Law. And when you read that book, you will be amazed at the role that the federal, state, and local governments played in creating segregation, that people don't self-segregate that white people created all white spaces on purpose because most white people don't know that. When you watch the 13th uh, video that Jared mentioned earlier, you understand how connected uh, slavery is to the modern day institution of mass incarceration. And you also learn that guess what? The 13th Amendment to the Constitution that supposedly ended slavery did not end slavery in this country. What it did, the words of it said that slavery and involuntary servitude are illegal except as punishment for a crime you've been duly convicted of, which means that slavery is still perfectly legal to this day in this country if you've been convicted of a crime. And what that did was it allowed people to create a new system called the convict lease system where they would create new laws called black codes. They would accuse black people of, of crimes and white person could do the same thing, but they arrest a black person. And then they would have people who were plantation owners, uh, owners of mines, and they could come into the courtroom. You've just been convicted, Jared. We're going to buy you and make you pay off that debt by working for us for free. And this system lasted all the way into the 1930s. So well, we have to understand yeah. that there's too much about our history that we don't know. And when we invest our time and effort in learning that history, we can make better decisions. We can have the types of conversations that don't lead to people saying, well, I, you know, I'm not a racist and, you know, and all these other things that you're talking about. When you learn true American history and you have conversations about it, constructive conversations based on factual information, all of those things that you talked about, uh, Eric, they disappear. They, they become null and void. You don't have to even have those conversations anymore. Well, thank you so much for indulging that question and, and for educating us and Dave for allowing us to take a little extra time here. Unfortunately, we are out of time, but we really, really thank you, Reggie. We thank you, Jared. We loved having you as our guests. And I'm just sorry, honestly, that we have to talk about this subject. I mean, I'd love to have a conversation about something totally different with you guys, you know, but here we are. And, um, you know, John Lewis, who you might know as a congressman from Georgia and long standing civil rights leader and advocate, um, has often sort of used this phrase, uh, said this when referring to the Black experience in America. He says, uh, We have used our bodies to redeem the soul of America. And you know, it's my prayer that that this will be accomplished. So the phrase won't be relevant anymore to our vocabulary. But until that day, we wish you both the best in your endeavors and, and in helping others to find common ground for action, for justice, for healing. Uh, to our viewers and um, any communities out there that could benefit from authentic dialogue, from action, from healing, please contact. Uh, Reggie Jackson at Nurturing Diversity Partners. He and his colleagues do fantastic work. And if you're facing, you know, issues of, of, legal, of a legal nature, you'll not find obviously a more passionate and competent advocate than Jarrett Adams in the law offices of Jarrett Adams. So thank you both. Yeah, and I'd like to thank our guests as well. Uh, as I said earlier, we've really only just scratched the surface here, but it's been a very positive and very constructive conversation and we appreciate uh, your taking the time to take part. Um, Eric, I'd also like to mention for the benefit of our, our viewers that uh, Jared will be with us again as a featured presenter at our Toward One Wisconsin conference, which will be held in Green Bay uh, on November 12th and 13th uh, later this year. 
Uh, to find out more, I'd encourage people to visit t1w.org. And for topic ideas and guest suggestions for us two bald guys for our future shows, uh, feel free to give us a shout out uh, on the Facebook chat or if you're watching live, if you're watching live or you can contact us at info at whips.org. Um, thanks again for being here, guys, and we'll see our viewers next week. It was a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you guys so much, Jared. Good to uh, chat it up with you, man. And uh, I look forward to making. You got to do something. Yeah, absolutely. And I look forward to to making my way back up to Warsaw again at some point. Yeah, we look forward to seeing you. Take care, both of you. All right. Thank you, guys.